1: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Uh, two days ago till Christmas here now, and we're taking a look at the weather forecast. And uh, looks like we could get a white Christmas on a Saturday. Just taking a look at the Environment Canada uh, forecast. Yeah, it is possible we get some snow here in th- the next couple of days. And then we are going into the deep freeze. So the weather alert from Environment Canada is prepare for some very cold temperatures. We could be getting snow We could be getting ice, freezing rain, and it's important to be aware of the weather that's approaching. Let's discuss that right now with my guest, Mike Farnworth, B.C.'s Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety. And I'm very pleased he could take the time for us. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, Mike, what kind of uh, weather are you looking for here? What's the latest that you're hearing?
2: Well, we're looking at the uh, potential of uh, snowfall uh, starting, um, you know, Christmas, uh, Christmas day, uh, into boxing day and the potential, um, you know, it's still, we're still a few days out of some significant amounts, 20 to 30 centimeters in Langley, uh, and in, you know, wow. much more than that in many other parts of the province at a time when, you know, people have been wanting to, and the highways have been out. And now we've got, uh, highway three open and the potential, you know, people want to travel, uh, over the Christmas holidays. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, real concern to make sure that people are prepared, and that's just on the snow side. And then following that uh, is the, uh, the, you know, some, uh, the first real significant uh, freeze and a potential long-term freeze uh, that we've seen in the province uh, this year.
1: Yeah, for sure. If you take a look into next week, you're looking at some bone-chilling temperatures there. And what's your advice to people, let's say, for people who are living on the streets, they're homeless, maybe living alone? Uh what kind of what kind of warning or advice are you giving to the public at this point?
2: Uh, well, first off, um, for obviously for people to be aware of this and to prepare for this kind of weather. So not just in terms of so in terms of people on the street, it's making sure that they're aware of the uh, the shelter spaces that are available. Uh, so there'll be outreach workers going out to let people know about the cold weather uh, and where they can find a temporary shelter. Uh, there's about to just over 2,200 uh, permanent year-round shelter spaces, but we've added uh, more than 1,900 temporary shelter spaces and additional 360 what are called extreme weather shelter spaces um, and communities issue uh, an extreme weather alert when those spaces are, spaces are available. So it's making sure that people on the street uh, know that there's where you can get shelter. And at the same time, police are also aware and are able to connect people who are homeless with shelter supports and services where they're needed at the same time for you know people uh, just need to be aware too it's it's important to check you know your your pipes and your your outdoor taps and those kinds of things because what we also don't want to see is is homeowners um experiencing cracked pipes or or uh, you know those kinds of things uh, that can cause uh, real problems in temperatures uh, that, that are potentially down you know minus minus eleven, minus twelve, minus fifteen for example, um, and especially over an extended period of time
1: now i 'm taking a look at some of the uh, the local advisories from the city of Vancouver, for example, and a lot of these warming centers and shelters are run locally at the municipal level. Does the province coordinate with local cities when you've get extreme weather events like this?
2: Yeah, the, the province uh, coordinates with local communities. Uh, we make, um, there's funding available as well uh, in terms of opening up uh, warm, warming centres uh, for communities. Uh, the province coordinates as well, works with, uh, with First Nations uh, to ensure that uh, they're aware of the supports that are, that are available. Uh, and, uh, and, and getting that message out, and particularly right now, um, you know, on our roads, uh, especially yeah. with uh, with the potential for some significant snowfall, you know, people need to be prepared. They need to make sure, one, that they've got snow tires on, um, that uh, in, in many areas you'll be requiring that, you know, chains are required, uh, and to have, you know, some basics in the, in the vehicles with them, whether it's uh, blankets or some food, uh, make sure your cell phones are charged. Uh, and if you don't have to travel, you know, it's not really the best time.
1: Speaking to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth about some of the cold uh, weather on the way. we got snow, we have ice, we have freezing rain uh, all in the forecast. Minister, are we taking a look at some of the conditions on some of the highways that have been damaged in the floods and landslides that have recently reopened? The Coquihalla is now open to commercial traffic. Highway 3 has been reopened, but I know there's still a lot of work to do to repair these highways. Then you throw in the potential for snow and ice, on these roads. What's your message to people who are heading out on these highways?
2: Uh, People need to drive to the conditions. Um, You know, the the Highway 3, for example, which is open to regular traffic, um, it's a safe highway, but people need to drive to those conditions. And so that means understanding that, you know, um, that snow and ice, you know, the normal speed, maybe 80 or 100k, you do not drive that in this kind of weather. Um, and there, w- there is enforcement uh, out on the Coquihalla. Um Again, you know this is for uh, commercial traffic uh, only, but uh, there is enforcement on that uh, on that highway, as well as uh, um, you know reduced speed limits uh, in many sections, particularly where the repairs have been done. And people need to be vigilant and extremely careful. Uh, and when you've got this kind of this kind of uh, low temperatures uh, for the you know for the coming week, starting next week. Um there's a you know, and the desire for people to get to places where they haven't been able to get to for a while. um yeah. you know people if you don't have to travel, don't travel is the best advice
1: yeah, for sure I mean some people are going to travel though be at the holidays, of course to reunite with family if they want to get into see family in the interior or whatever and in some cases, highway three maybe their only option. And that highway that is a tricky highway to drive in the best of times. I mean it's twisty and turny and you got switchbacks, but then you throw in the damage from the flooding and the landslides and then ice and snow on top of that. I mean you gotta be super cautious when you're on these highways and we're seeing reports of guys who are like putting the hammer down in some of these highways on the Cocahala Highway three, a lot of speeding tickets being written up. Do you find that frustrating?
2: Oh, it's always frustrating. And some of the videos we've seen of people passing on uh, a double yellow line around a blind corner, uh, yeah. it's, you know, that's just appalling. Now, the good news is, is that individual and that company um, not only got ticketed, but had a license removed um, as well. Uh, and they they handed out over 116 uh, speeding tickets just before um, uh, just before the uh, the opening of of the Coca uh, Cola. Um, but, uh, enforcement is there, is out there. And the reality is this is people need to take this into account. This is, you know, it's not sort of like a, this is not a summer drive. Uh, highway three is open, but it is a, it is a twisty winding road. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's why the commercial vehicles want to go on the Coquihalla because yeah. it's a, you know, it's a big wide highway.
1: Minister, thank you for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. Slow down,
2: Homer.
3: Don't worry, honey. I know exactly what I'm... Whoopsie. Tap
4: the brakes! Tap the brakes! Turn into the snow No, wait for skid! Turn the brakes. Go the Stop. Stop. Go, to the into Go the middle. Shut up! One at a time!
1: Okay. okay, there's Homer trying to figure out how to drive in the snow and ice. Let's check in with Sterling Art now. He's a winter tire and driving expert. He's the owner of OK Tire. Hey, Sterling? Hey, how you doing, Mike? I'm I'm doing good. So, it's funny to listen to that that Homer Simpson clip there. He doesn't know how to drive in the snow either. So, when you get into a skid like that, what are you supposed to do? You drive toward the direction you're skidding in? Is that Is that what you do? Well, the biggest thing is you want to look where you want the car to go and and you'll
3: you'll actually turn you'll naturally turn into the skid. That's really what you want to do. Of course, you want to slow down a little bit as well, but obviously you're going too fast, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk tires for a second here, Sterling. So right now, what kind of winter tires should people have in their vehicles?
3: Um, bare minimum, you want to have all weather with the mountain snowflake. Um, ideally, winter tires, like full winter tires would be a a very good option.
1: Okay, so I get confused, and I know other people do too, when we start looking at the t- whether it's winter tires, snow tires, all-weather tires, all-season tires... Like, what are the differences? Like, all season, all weather, those are different things, right?
3: They are. Um, an all-season tire essentially is a three-season tire, we call it. Our, well, you know, even just a summer tire, rain tire would be a good way to look at it. All-weather tires, rated for snow and ice, uh, something you can leave on all year round, but that's where you want to, at least minimum, that's what you want for winter.
1: Right, and what if you, do you need four, four snow tires, like four winter tires in your vehicle, or can you get away with two?
3: No you always want to have four matching, so yeah. either if you 're going to have all season all weather or winter, you want to have four the same
1: and what if i 've got all wheel drive on my vehicle does it matter? Is that you still need the winter tires yeah it, depending where you want to
3: go like if you 're around town, you know you could probably get an, and you 're willing to stay home when it 's bad you 're probably fine with what came factory, but even so like uh, an all wheel drive still has to slow down and steer, and those are those are the Times when the uh, the winter and all weathers will help you the most.
1: Okay, Starling, let's uh, squeeze in a couple of calls here while we can too. Dave on the line in Langley. Hi, Dave. Hi there. Hi, go ahead.
5: Yeah, I just um, I want to just make a note to everybody in the Lower Mainland. Like, we need to stop slamming on our brakes. That's the major problem here with all our hills. Uh, back in Ontario. You'll never find anybody slamming on brakes. They'll pulse their brakes. They'll tap them, they tap them. multiple times.
1: Yeah, um,
5: that, that's what we're finding that happens everywhere around the Lower mainland because everyone skidded out from slamming on brakes and yeah. going right into yeah. the ditch.
1: Yeah, you go into a lot You go into a lockup, uh, S- Sterling. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know what? Most new cars will have anti-lock brakes,
3: so you you can just if you gently get on the brakes everything you want to do in the snow, is just gentle and smooth. Like like the caller said, you don't want to just hammer the brakes. If you get on it gently and smooth, the anti-lock brakes will actually do a lot of work for you. So get on them smoothly and then progressively get onto the brakes a little harder as you need it. And the car will actually do a lot of the work for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, what about like tap, tap the brakes? Does that make sense if you're in a slide? You know, um, again, with, with the newer
3: cars, with, ABS, like the anti-lock braking systems, you can, some people will say tap the brakes, but quite honestly, you get on them smoothly and the car will, you'll feel that pulsation in the brake pedal. Now that's the car doing its work to to unlock the skid, right? Right, right.
1: Okay, Carolyn on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Carolyn, go ahead. Oh, good morning. Hi.
0: Yes, yes, no, people in Vancouver don't know how to drive in snow i mean this so many times oh my goodness i grew up in saskatchewan and ontario i learned yeah. to drive in the snow in the middle of winter when i was 15. so and 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 then since we moved out here it's like like there's like you know one centimeter or so people freak out
1: they lose you know their I mean? they lose their minds i hear this all the time Th- thank you for the call carolyn uh sterling i mean i'm sure you heard this too like Okay, yeah, I'm from Flin Flon. I know what I'm doing here. You know, people here don't know how to drive in the snow. Do you think that's a cheap shot, or do you think that's true of lower mainland well, drivers?
6: In, in,
3: in, I've been to Saskatchewan. There's not a lot of hills there, Mike. So <laughs> I, yeah.
1: I think she's a little
3: offside to begin with. But, um, you know, it's, it's true. It's just we don't get it consistently. So I think people are – they don't get to practice much, right? So yeah, there, there is probably some truth to that.
1: Okay, Doug on the line in Surrey. Hi, Doug.
6: Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. I live across uh, from the King George Skytrain, and they've done a lot of great construction here on new intersections. They're well lit. They're uh, intelligently designed. and uh, But when it rains, uh, there's a lot of water running down to uh, the intersection, down the valley here a little bit. But uh, people get their garters in and knot when they think that they're... Uh, um, the light's going to change, and, oh, the world is going to end if they don't get to the other side of the intersection. They should, if they're caught speeding and trying to run a light, there's enough space in Surrey that in weather like this, set it aside as an impound lot. (laughs) If you're you're caught, you lose your car to the end of January, end of discussion.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Well, you know, I guess we should all we slow down a little bit. You got to drive to the conditions, and if you've got snow and ice, you should drive to those conditions. Sterling, we just got a minute left here. Where is your okay tire located again? I'm on
3: uh, Kingsway in Vancouver, right near Victoria Drive.
1: Right. Okay. And how much are four winter tires going to set me back these days? Um, for a, a normal, like a smaller car,
3: starting five six hundred dollars, and then ranging up from there depending on what you drive.
1: Per, per tire oh no per no those set. per set per yeah set. okay yeah. Well, yeah thank goodness for that okay yeah so that's per, not per that set. expensive per set and then do you guys do tire storage like if i want to take my summer tires off can you store them for me
3: yes we store okay. them on site for um for convenience
1: okay thanks for coming on appreciate it hey
3: anytime mike thank you America's. okay
1: This is Mike Smith, COVID cases surging in the province. We're seeing a record number of cases right now, especially with the highly contagious Omicron variant of the virus. Let's talk about living with COVID and going into quarantine during the holidays, worst possible timing. My guest is Tracy Sherlock. Tracy is a freelance journalist. She writes a lot about education issues in BC. She's been a frequent guest on this show. And she's been writing lately about what it's like to catch COVID and go into quarantine. Tracy, thank you for coming on today.
0: Thank you for having me, Mike.
1: You bet. Thanks a lot. I recommend your blog, Pandemic Diary. I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter, where I learned that you are on the mend and feeling better, which is great to hear. How are you feeling today?
0: Yeah, I'm done my quarantine. I'm pretty much all better, but I do have still a little bit of residual uh, congestion which makes me worried about being around people too much.
1: Okay, but you're not they say you're not uh, contagious anymore though, I guess.
0: That's correct. Yeah. yeah, my quarantine was over Monday.
1: Okay, that's great to hear. When did you when did you test positive for COVID?
0: I tested positive on December the 9th.
1: Okay, and how did how did you get it, Do you know?
0: You know, I have no idea how I got it. I really was living a very low-risk um, lifestyle. I I did go to a couple of restaurants with friends, but about that's about the highest risk thing that I did. Otherwise, walks um, walks outside with friends. I did go to the uh, physiotherapy. I went and got a massage one day. That's it. So no parties. I'm not sure where I got it.
1: Right, and you're va- you're double vaccinated.
0: Correct. I am double vaccinated.
1: Yes. Yeah, this is it. I mean, people are people are testing positive, even if they're fully vaxxed. And I, I read in your blog that you were in a car at one point and you, you think maybe a couple of friends caught it from you. Is that right?
0: Definitely uh, two friends and two people who I live with caught it from me in total. And with the two friends, the only thing I can pin it down to is that with each of them separately, I drove on that uh, day thursday december the 9th before i had any symptoms um that was a, i got the first symptoms that night and but during that day i drove separately with with both of them and i'm pretty sure that's how i spread it to them
1: oh dear okay what was it like when it first came on what were your symptoms like at the start
0: <laughs> you know it's funny because i'd been wearing a, an n95 mask that day um, <clears throat> it's the first time I'd ever worn one, but I was around uh, more people than usual, so I thought I would wear one. And when my, the very first symptom that I had was a, a dry throat. And honestly, I thought it was from wearing that mask all day. I thought that, you know, maybe I hadn't drank enough water, because you can't really drink water properly if you're, got a, if you have a mask on, it's awkward, you know, you have to take it off, etc. And so yeah, it was dry throat that came on first, and then sort of a dull headache. Um, so that was the first night, and then as the disease progressed, those symptoms really just got a bit worse, that's that's how I would describe it, like the headache became head congestion, at one point that went into both of my ears, and that was quite painful, um, the dry throat became more of a sore throat, which became more of a, like a cough, clearing, th- clearing cough, sort of, um, yeah, I did have some body aches and pains, too. But those were my main symptoms.
1: And, uh, you know, we often hear people say they lose their taste of smell their ta- their, uh, and they can't taste their food. Did that happen to you?
0: It did not. I kept my sense of smell and my sense of taste. And I never had a fever either. So okay. I really didn't have the classic symptoms.
1: Okay, so it sounds like it was pretty mild. And then um, you just, was it easy to uh, get tested?
0: You know, when I... So that was early December. December 10th was the day that I got tested. December 9th was my first symptom. And really, I only had to wait about 10 minutes at the testing station. But it was within a couple of days from then that lineups started getting really big and sort of people had to wait an hour, two hours. I saw like five hours the other day.
7: yeah.
0: But when I did it, it was very easy. There were just a few cars ahead of me.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you were kind of at the start of this recent wave. It was sort of going going out. The case count was going up early on there. And so you're, I, I suspect if you were trying to get a test now, you'd, be a, you'd have a much longer wait. <laughs> I'm speaking to Tracy Sherlock about her experience with COVID. Did they tell you if it was an Omicron?
0: Uh, they didn't tell me i'm pretty convinced that it, it was omicron just simply based on the speed at which it spread from me to, to those two friends i told you about yeah. it was really only 48 hours between the time they saw me and they got their first symptoms so that's a sign of omicron is that it spreads much faster than traditional covid or delta
1: yeah okay and then once you tested positive then what's the next step after that you immediately go into isolation
0: yeah, I went into isolation, even in inside my house, because I was it, I was unsuccessful, but I was trying not to pass it on to anybody who I live with.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so I was in my in my own room for most of those ten days.
1: Oh dear, what was that like?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> thank goodness, you know, we have Netflix, we have uh, phones that are constantly keeping us in contact with everyone. I didn't really have a chance to get too bored. And one thing that people might not know is that when you do test positive with COVID in BC, you are allowed to go outside for a walk every day. As long as you're masked and alone, you can't go with anybody. Uh, But that was one thing that really did keep me sane, was I was able to leave the house every day and at least go for a walk.
1: Right, right. How about uh, contact tracing? Did they contact you about that?
0: So they did contact me, but... Uh, It certainly wasn't what my understanding of contact tracing would be. I mean, they asked me who I had seen in the previous 48 hours. By the time they had called, I had already let all of those people know, anybody who I'd seen. So they didn't even end up calling any of those people to let them know. Um, But in terms of trying to figure out where I got COVID from, really they just said, well, were you at any parties or large events? I said no. And they said, well, then it's a mystery. So, yeah, and I'm sure now with the huge surge in cases, I'm, I don't think there's any of that going on really at all. Yeah, did that
1: surprise you at all? I mean, did you expect them to do sort of a more sort of deeper dive into your contacts? or?
0: I did, yes. Uh, I uh... thought that they would try to figure out how I got it, really, yeah. and make sure that everyone uh, who I had been in contact with was informed. You know, I had already informed them, but lots of people wouldn't, wouldn't do that, you know?
1: Right. How did, how is this, uh, how did it impact when you are in, uh, in isolation during those days? Did you have to cancel any plans? I'm sure you did.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to cancel everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's that time of year with Christmas. Um, gatherings had been planned. and Oh, and uh, my husband and I were supposed to go on a, a little holiday to Vancouver Island, and we had to cancel all of that. That was disappointing. That was really the first thing we had planned um, since COVID started almost two years ago. We planned a little getaway to um, Kingfisher Spa on Vancouver Island. Nice, nice and, place. Yeah, I've never been there, but I, I really wanted to go there, and so we had to cancel it. But we'll go back. We're going to go back in the future.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to read your blog, Tracy, about your experience, and thank goodness that you know, you've gone through a mild bout of this, and you're on the mend now, um, but you did, it is a learning experience for you and, and it's interesting to hear you share your experiences. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, your most recent blog post, you talked about some of the myths around the current COVID spread. Let's talk about transmission happening at, at organized events.
0: What I would just say is based on my own experience with um, the contact tracing, I don't think we really know where it spreads. You know, and, and for me, I suspect, that where it spread for me was in the car with those, with those two friends when I was unmasked. Um, but given there was so little follow-up, for instance, me and one of the friends went to a, a restaurant together. We both ended up testing positive, but they never even asked for the name of the, the restaurant. So without that, how can we say that it doesn't spread I don't want to pick on restaurants. I don't think it's their fault. But how can we say it doesn't spread, say, for instance, in a university exam classroom when we're not really tracking whether it spreads in those places?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it is. And you take a look at the um, the shutdown, the, or the public health orders that have been issued this week, and some places have been shut down, others have not. And it, it certainly does lead to questions around, well, what is the rationale be around like shutting down a bar, but not shutting down a pub or shutting down a gym, but not shutting down restaurants. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you could, you could get it in these places too. What about, uh, you know, you're double vaccinated. You were uh, waiting for, you hadn't got the booster though, right? You're still on the list for the booster.
0: Correct. And yeah. interestingly enough, today is my six months, uh, from getting my dose too. And I have not been invited for a booster.
1: Right. And, okay, so you're double vaccinated, you still caught COVID, the people around you are all vaccinated. So, I mean, if you're va- if you're double vaccinated, you can catch this virus very easily, it sounds like.
0: Oh, 100%. All of the people who I gave it to, which is four, which is devastating, <laughs> I don't like giving yeah. it to anybody, but every single one of them was double vaccinated.
1: Wow. Yeah. And that certainly, that sure sounds like Omicron, because were, we're told that you know a lot of people are double vaccinated or getting the omicron variant to the virus although they haven't informed you what it is but it's it sure sounds like that's what it is right
0: It absolutely does yeah, yes, yeah. I believe it is yeah.
1: mm-hmm. okay where do you go from here now so you're you're good to go your quarantine's over you're not infectious but you still I, you still feel nervous about it though right?
0: I absolutely feel nervous about it for two reasons I feel nervous about spreading it because I already did that without having you know, without having any symptoms or knowing that I was spreading it. So I'm nervous about spreading it again. Um, And I'm nervous about getting it because I got it from some unknown situation. I didn't do anything that was high risk, but I got it. So that means I could get it again. The other thing about Omicron, and and I don't know, you know, we're still learning a lot about it, but it's really good at um, uh, reinfecting people. So people who've already had COVID. Yeah. So oh, we don't know what that means, right? I could get it again.
1: Tracy, uh, I'm glad it was not a severe bout of the virus that you suffered through here. And I'm glad you're back on the mend. And I hope you have a very healthy and happy new year. Thanks a lot for coming on and talk about it today.
0: Okay. Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little fishing, hunting, wildlife management, fisheries management in British Columbia. It was a rough year for everyone in British Columbia as we draw to the end of it. will speak with Jesse Zeman, now Executive Director of the BC Wildlife Federation, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jesse, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having us on, Mike. Okay, Jesse, congratulations on your appointment to the top job there at the BC Wildlife Federation. I think that's a a well-deserved promotion for you. Um, Let's talk about a a really difficult year in British Columbia with the wildfires, the flooding, the landslides. What kind of impact has that had on fisheries, wildlife in B.C., if any?
6: Yeah, so we we have had a really tough year, and I was just listening to your show, and we have COVID as well, so it's been hard on on everyone and everything. Uh, When we look at the wildfire piece, Uh, What we're learning and starting to really realize is that uh, a lot of our wildlife evolved with fire. And so fire, when it's managed and done at the right time of year, is actually good for wildlife. Um, It helps essentially kind of clean up some of the, the dead trees and allows sunlight to hit the forest floor. It opens the canopy. So there's a whole bunch of benefits for wildlife. And what we're also learning is that when we suppress fire, over time, we build up a bunch of fuel. We have way more trees in the forest, which is not good when we're trying to fight fire. So I think on the wildfire front, what we're learning is if we have controlled burns in the spring and the fall, we can do really good by wildlife, and we can also help mitigate the effects of wildfire on people's property and on their homes. So uh, uh, the long-term learning on that is we need to change the way that we manage our forests, and ironically, that what's best for wildlife is also what's best for people.
1: Okay, interesting. Jesse, you know, the BC Wildlife Federation represents uh, resident hunters and, and anglers in British Columbia, and I think you guys do an awesome job of doing that. Let me ask you about some of the, some of the hot issues here for, for your organization going forward here in the new year. Like are there any wildlife populations in British Columbia that are particularly uh, threatened right now or that you're worried about?
6: Yeah, that's a provincial issue. I mean, your listeners will be really uh, aware and up to speed on the issue around endangered mountain caribou. But broadly, when we look across the landscape, we've experienced recent declines in moose populations in the central interior of 50 to 70%. We have huge declines of deer deer, uh, bighorn sheep that are experiencing disease and die-off in Okanagan, and the cutenies are at record low. So every you know, typically across the province, the outlook really isn't good for wildlife. We do have one bright spot, Roosevelt elk on Vancouver Island, and on the coast, seem to do be being seem to be doing really well. Um, but otherwise, it's it's pretty bleak for sure.
1: Okay, that's very troubling to hear that. So let's talk about some of those issues. So so moose populations, for example, in British Columbia, and you and I have talked about this before. And, and what are some of the problems there? What is reducing that such a dramatic reduction in those numbers? What is causing that?
6: Yeah, a lot of this really, again, ties back to this business of of forest management. And when we look at research that's been done by, um, you know, scientists on moose, uh, particularly in Alaska, when a fire goes through, same thing, you have a whole bunch of vegetation that comes up. Um, You have trees that also fall down. So moose are better able to evade their predators. And, Moose populations increase drastically, uh, sometimes for as long as 30 to 40 years. And so in B.C., where we see the biggest declines is typically places where we've had salvage logging as a result of pine beetle kill. Um, Moose habitat isn't that hard to make, but the challenge with moose habitat is it's not always what's best for running logs through mills because moose prefer deciduous um, forests. And so this is really about the way that we manage our landscapes putting fire back on the landscape, which again is, you know, going to be good for protecting people's homes in the long run, and it's also going to be good for
1: moose. Wasn't there some disease that was affecting moose as well? Like, was it Lyme, Lyme's disease?
6: In other parts, they're definitely saying um, brainworm worm is, oh. is an issue. Uh, in the northeastern United States and in Manitoba, they're, they're really uh, considering that as, as one of the factors. But in B.C., you know, uh, the irony is in places where we're trying to do caribou recovery um, and trying to manage moose down is also where we have moose populations increasing. So, you know, uh, w- we could be doing a better job. It's just a matter of focusing investment. And really, the big thing is thinking about how we manage our forests and trying to manage our yeah. forests for wildlife.
1: Speaking of Jesse Zeman, executive director BC Wildlife Federation, you mentioned some of the work that you guys are doing with mule mule deer. What what's a mule deer like? I'm I'm familiar with like a white-tailed deer, but a, a mule deer. It's like a is that like a bigger species of deer?
6: Yeah, so they are, they're a relatively new species of deer. They evolved maybe you know one and a half million years ago versus white-tailed deer, which are a much older species. But they're kind of an iconic species in the West. And so mule deer, again, evolves in these open forests where they like to see a long ways. They're the ones that have really big ears, hence mule deer. Um, and they also have a white bum with a black, black tip on their tail. And so in a whole bunch of parts of the central interior, we've seen dramatic declines in mule deer. Um, in the boundary region, so Grand Forks, Rock Creek, we've seen declines of up to 90% in the last 60 years in terms of hunter wow. harvest. And so people have uh, really put, you know, put their money where their mouth is. And we started a project about five years ago, which has turned into the biggest collaborative mule deer research project in the province's history. Um, And for your viewers, uh, TELUS uh, supported us to build a documentary. It's called Community for the Wild. It's available on TELUS uh, Optique right now. And it'll be available to the public in the new year that actually talks about how we're doing research, what we're looking at and how we can hopefully restore mule deer, and a big part of that, again, Mike, is really about managing our forests and getting fire back on the landscape and managing for diversity. Um, that's the big, the big thing in this uh, equation.
1: You got the BC Wildlife Federation. You represent uh, resident, resident hunters and anglers in in British Columbia. And I've interviewed hunters, other hunting organizations in BC over the years who were concerned around the rules and regulations for guide outfitters who who uh might bring in like american hunters to hunt big game animals in british columbia what is the uh, the current status of that i mean do you still have concerns there with those regulations with out of out of province out of country hunter hunters coming to british columbia that's probably slowed down during the pandemic i imagine
6: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good, you know, the federation, the BC Wildlife Federation is the largest and oldest conservation organization in BC. We have over, well over 40,000 members, over 100 clubs. Uh, Some of our clubs started actually in the 1800s. So a long history in terms of conservation in BC. It's really interesting over the last, just over a year ago, we started this coalition called the Fish, Wildlife and Habitat Coalition. And there's a whole bunch of groups. There's over 28 different organizations that represents over 1,000 businesses, 300,000 British Columbians that all came together that said, you know what, we can all fight over these individual little issues that really divide us, or we can all come to the realization that BC is losing fish and wildlife and habitat at such a rapid rate that none of us Are going to have the ability to function moving forward so all of these groups came together under the banner of the fish wildlife and habitat coalition and instead of you know kind of fighting over a dwindling resource we're all working together to try to restore it
1: okay i I like the sound of that let me ask you about i'm a i'm an angler myself i enjoy fishing when i get the opportunity uh, what is going on with salmon stocks? And I'm particularly um, interested in steelhead stocks. I've never, I've never actually caught a steelhead, uh, a rainbow, a rainbow trout, a steelhead rainbow trout. I've tried. I've never caught one. Maybe one day. Yeah,
6: and yeah, and, and on the steelhead front, you you quite honestly may not get the opportunity. Um, we've we've talked about interior Fraser steelhead. Um, They're endangered. That used to be, you know, people from all over the world would come to angle for them. Uh, Catch and keep fishing has been closed for decades, yet they've continued to decline. Uh, We've demonstrated on a number of occasions where the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has hidden peer-reviewed science related to the effects of nets, particularly in the Fraser River on these steelhead. This year, we are looking at an all-time record low of just over 100 fish between the Chilcolon oh, and the, in the Thompson Rivers. And that used to be literally thousands of fish. And the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has been completely non-responsive despite the fact that these fish have gone through the federal um, process around species at risk. Um, following that up, On the Skeena River, you know, we used to have well over 20,000 to 30,000 steelhead. This year, again, record low return, worst return they've ever had on steelhead. And as um, your viewers, I'm sure, know, Pacific salmon are following the same trend. So, you know, uh, 30 years ago, the East Coast fishery failed as a result of mismanagement and a number of other issues. And we're headed in that direction here in BC um, for certain, uh, we do have a new minister who has made already made some, you know, can, keeping the decision around fish farms and getting them out. But we have some major habitat related issues. It appears we have some predation issues in the ocean. And uh, of course, we have climate change. Um, but, yeah. but you know, it takes it takes money to, to make things happen. And definitely the, the government of Canada needs to step in and start funding to basically take care of uh, Pacific salmon for sure.
4: Canadian sport fishing with the tallow and henry. They catch a lot of fish and they do with their friendly. Canadian sport fishing with the tallow and henry. They talk and they fish and they show no
5: fishing. fishing. Canadian sport fishing
1: on TSN. Okay, it used to be my favorite show there. It's not my favorite sport fishing show. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Jesse Zeman, BC Wildlife Federation, is my guest. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. We're talking about the management of wildlife and fisheries in British Columbia. Star 9898 on yourself. You mentioned earlier, Jesse, about endangered caribou herds in, in British Columbia. And, the, you know, the controversy over management of uh, wolf populations, like there's a wolf cull that's still going on in BC right to protect those endangered caribou. Do you support that wolf call because that's really controversial?
6: Yeah, the the BC Wildlife Federation supports science-based wildlife management and secondly, we support setting objectives for wildlife and uh, under the under the objective setting piece uh, there's a you know there's a big there's a big disconnect here when we talk about industry or we talk about the forest industry they have what they call certainty and certainty in supply and so that means they get access to x number of trees they have an annual allowable cut in bc and in canada we don't have objectives for how many steelhead we should have in a river or how many salmon we should have in a river or how many caribou we should have on the landscape and so in the absence of those objectives we end up with uh no salmon and no steelhead and no caribou. And so the caribou story really is about um, industrialization and natural resource extraction, principally logging over time. And what that's done is, again, it's opened up the forest floor, which has created food for other species like moose and deer and elk, which have increased significantly. And then we have um, predator populations, in particular wolves in the north and, and, and cougars in the south to a lesser extent. They increase as well and just through incidents, we end up with more caribou that end up getting killed by predators. And over time, they end up declining, which leads us to this endangered status. And so when we look at the habitat after all of this logging, um, you know, we have in the the in the temperate rainforest, inland temperate rainforest, we've got 80 or 100 years before that habitat gets back to a place where caribou are essentially isolated from all these other species. So in the interim you know, you you need to manage the issue related to predation. You don't have a choice. The alternative is that caribou go extinct, and I don't think anybody wants that.
1: Okay, squeeze a call in here on the open line. Mike calling from Surrey. Hey, Mike, go ahead.
5: Hey, I've got a, I've got a question. It's really about the moose population. You know, uh, one of the things I found, I had an office up in Prince George for about 20 years, and uh, I noticed that everybody... And his brother had a moose tag, like there's going to be so many moose tags. And I used to be concerned because I thought, you know, they, and they all seem to get moose. Like they would be six or eight people in an office.
6: Everybody got a moose. Everybody in the hotel got a moose. You know, and I'm just wondering, are we overhunting some some of these uh, uh, animals, like like moose, for example? You know, are they just okay. simply being overhunted? That's why it's a problem.
1: Okay, good question. we got a minute left here, Jesse. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, that's a really great question. So how we manage hunting is we manage hunting based on what we observe in terms of the moose population. And when we talk about how um, moose or any wildlife population changes over time, it's typically through female, adult female survival and then juvenile survival. So the calves and moose hunting across just about the entire province has shifted away from harvesting um, cows and calves to a bull only harvest. So we're at the point now where much of our moose hunting and deer hunting is, is almost, in a sense, fail-safe. And the number of moose being harvested by resident hunters, when we look over time from the 70s and the 80s to now, has gone from about 12 to 13,000 a year to 4,000 to 4,500. So we've seen a huge decrease in the opportunity and the harvest of moose in BC to adjust for these declines. But the, the overarching issue here, again, is going to be around habitat and predation and roads and logging practices, for sure. That's what's driving you, it. Hunters are, are being worked out of the equation in terms of wildlife think,
1: management. Hey, Jesse, do you think those numbers are, are cur- like, you know, do you think the province is doing a good job in sort of limiting the hunting that's allowed in the province? you got 30 seconds here.
6: Yeah, yeah. hunting has become, it's moving more and more to fail-safe regulations because the province, I mean, so let's put it into context. BC is the most poorly funded management, fish and wildlife management jurisdiction probably in all of North America. We have one of the most diverse jurisdictions, and we don't give it any money, and so over time, fish and wildlife management is moving more and more to fail-safe regulations in terms of hunting and fishing, yet... We okay. continue with all of these things that are destroying fish and wildlife habitat. So the end result okay. is they decline.
1: Jesse, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it.
6: Thanks, Mike. Have a uh, good weekend.
1: Oh, is that the turkey? That looks dry. Show, that's drier than the Sahara Desert, you muppet. Really? <laughs> oh, okay, here we go now with my favorite segment of the year, how to roast a perfect Christmas turkey. Now, I am a home cook. I enjoy cooking the turkey dinner for my family. I've got a 15-pound turkey at home. I will be brining it on Christmas Eve, roasting it on Christmas Day. Let's discuss now how to cook a perfect, moist, Beautiful turkey your whole family will love. Karen McSherry is my guest, founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse. And Karen, I look forward to this conversation every year.
4: So do I, Mike. And I (laughs) I look forward to it even more this year so that we can bring some actual happy news to our listeners because we all need some happy
1: you're darn right about that we need a great christmas turkey dinner okay karen so there's there's so let's talk with some of the basics here now first of all what size turkey should you buy because i've i've seen some different guidelines on this you got to know how many guests you got right so what size turkey should you buy based on your number of guests
4: Usually count for a pound to a pound and a half per person, because when you discard the bones and all of the oil and it shrinks as it cooks, that's what you're left with. And everybody wants leftovers. There's nothing better than a
1: leftover Boxing Day turkey sandwich. Yeah, for sure. And I always get the fresh turkey. I mean, you know, a a frozen turkey, I guess, is is an option for people. Is a frozen turkey cheaper, typically?
4: Yes, it is typically
1: cheaper. It is
4: definitely cheaper, but the fresh you get it's much more moist. Um, it brines better. It, it, everything is just better. But if you can't and you have no access to fresh, you can, a frozen turkey will be fine because it's all about the cooking and the presentation and the sides.
1: Okay, let's, let's talk about the brine now because I know you're a big believer in brining the bird and, and so am I. I've been totally converted on this so what do you, let's talk about how you do that. What are some of the basics on that?
4: So the you can either buy a brine mix where you just add the water or you can, a brining solution would be um, kosher salt has to be kosher salt it cannot be iodized regular table salt it must be kosher salt sugar and then aromatics and aromatics would be thyme um, rosemary garlic um, you know throw in a few little chilies anything any flavors that you love and you're going to boil that down until the sugar and the salt are completely dissolved Then you cool it completely. Do not even think remotely that you're going to pour that hot liquid over that uncooked bird. Big disaster. So cool completely. It's cold outside. Stick the whole pot outside on your deck or in the garage and it'll cool right down. As soon as that brining solution is cooled... They sell things like a brining bag, which is like a great big giant Ziploc bag. And and, and it's a thicker plastic so that it won't puncture easily. And what I do is I use my Coleman cooler, the summer camping cooler, and I put the bag in the cooler, put the turkey in the bag because now it's manageable, and then have somebody help you hold the bag open. And as you pour in the very cool brining solution, seal the zip, put it in outside because it's cold now. And I usually put those camping packs, you know, the, the cool packs around it.
1: Yes. Right. So that
4: you keep it cold. I mean, it, it's perfect weather now that it, it it if it's outside on your deck, you're fine. It's yes. colder than your refrigerator, and 24 hours is is wh- what you want. That that will really really be um, the best. And for people that are freaked out when they see how much salt is in that brining solution and they go, Oh my God, the sodium, the knee, it doesn't do it. It's not, does not make your bird salty. What it does is it just breaks that outer protein down so that it opens up and that bird then becomes so adaptable to the roasting. It's delicious, moist, and you'll never go back to any other way.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do this every time now and you also like when I take the turkey out of the brine, I I rinse it thoroughly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, rinse the outside of it thoroughly and then I pat it dry. Now, for people who are listening to that to that, Karen, and thinking like, wow, that's a lot of work here to do this brining thing. Like, why is it why is it worth it? For one thing I find that it cook the turkey seems to cook quicker.
4: It does cook quicker. Yeah. It definitely yeah. cooks quicker. And that that therein is a is a bonus and, and yeah. it makes the meat far more tender and juicy. There's yes. no question. I've done every way that you can, and it is truly the magic. The magic in the bird is the brine.
1: Okay, what do you... Let's you can talk do about...
4: a chicken, too, if you're two people, yep. and the turkey's just, you know, eight pounds is way too much for two people. Do a, do a, a small chicken. You don't have to brine it 24 hours, maybe, maybe 18 hours, but you can brine anything. You can brine a duck,
1: a chicken. You can even brine prawns. <laughs> yeah, you can brine anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's true. Okay, Karen McSherry is my guest, Gourmet Warehouse. All right, Karen, we're ready to put the bird in, into the oven. What do you put on the outside of it? I usually rub the
4: outside with either butter or olive oil, yeah. and and then I also I'm a I'm a stuffing in the bird person. Cause I like it when the juices get into the stuffing and I love that. And then I have extra cause everybody would rather have stuffing than potatoes. We all know potatoes 12 months a year. We don't get stuffing 12 months a year. So I'm in the bird and then I, I just, and then I put a a foil cover on it and I put the foil, the shiny side to the bird. Okay. You want to put the shiny side in and you cover it loosely Yes, and then in the oven, and I start mine at 400, and then I turn it down to about 375.
1: Yeah, and I t- I do that as well. I start it out hot, and then I turn it down after I usually turn it down about 30 minutes in. Yeah, Does that sounds about exactly. right. Okay.
4: Exactly, exactly. Okay. Thirty minutes, 30, 30 to an hour in. And then turn it down and 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 an eight pound bird eight to twelve pound bird is like two to three hours and if you're up there into a twenty pound bird you're four to four and a half hours
1: right, okay, and do you baste the turkey as I you do. go along?
4: oh yes, you keep right. basting it and basting it, and you know another trick if you've got a little like um a, a cooling rack. Yep. put the cooling rack inside your roasting pan so that the bird doesn't sit in it because as yes. the bird sits in it it's going to keep it, the bottom part doesn't get nice and crispy and everybody always dives in for those crispy bits you got to yeah. slap
1: people when you're cutting it <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> do you put some um some vegetables on in the bottom of the pan like quite often i will put some rough cut carrots uh and onions in the bottom just to help with my gravy i like to make the pan gravy later
4: really good
1: idea and and they have to be root vegetables don't be putting beans
4: or you know anything like that no it has to be a hard root vegetable like onions like carrots like a parsnip or a turnip or something like that actually no turnip because turnip will give your gravy a bitter taste
1: okay okay what internal temperature do you cook that bird to
4: I cook mine to uh, 180.
1: 180, okay. All right.
4: 175 to 180, and that will give you a perfectly cooked bird um you know what brining will be what much quicker so you're going to take time off that and it could be a little bit lower so what, it, some people say 170 to 180 so in that thing all you want to do is wiggle that leg so you're going to take the leg and you're going to wiggle it and when it wiggles free and you can almost with your hand break it you know that your bird is done. So if you don't have a thermometer, you should because it's really helpful all year long. But you can wiggle that and then you're going to cut it. Juices should run clear, not pink. Nobody will eat a pink bird.
1: No, no, no. You don't want that for sure. You don't want it underdone. But you don't want it overdone either. No, 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 no.
4: So it's tricky. So So you're going to wiggle that leg. And that leg, if it resists, it's not ready to give it up. Yeah, you want it to so that you can actually just tear the the leg off and wham, you're ready.
1: Right. And another thing that I like to do is I like to start the bird fairly early, like maybe a little earlier than you would think, because that bird after it's out of the oven, it can sit there, and you should let it sit before you carve it, but it can sit there for quite a while, like longer Ooh, than you think. It has to
4: sit. Get yeah. a nice clean kitchen towel. Not paper towel, a, a, a cloth towel, and cover the bird. Like give it a little comforting before you're going to eat it. And that what that does is it settles the juices down. If you yeah. take it out of the oven and you begin carving, everything releases, and now all those juices are now in the bottom of the pan, and you don't or the the serving platter, and you don't want that. You want them to absorb back into the bird, which they will if you let it rest.
1: Welcome back to the show As we're talking turkey Here with Karen McSherry From the Gourmet Warehouse Lots of calls Let's go right to them Laura in Surrey Hi Laura
0: Hi there How are you doing? I'm Um, good I really enjoy this I'm like uh, her And I like to stuff my bird And I've been always Really fortunate To have a really nice Tender bird I have just one question I've often got The thermometers And um, they don't work I've had over three of them, brand new, and when I put them in the turkey and then I take it out to check it, I notice that it doesn't work.
4: Has anybody else had an issue with that? Because you can't return them, of course. <laughs> mm. Karen. Okay. This is, when you, this is the thing with thermometers. Just don't pick them up anywhere. There are two companies, um, three maybe, in, in North America that actually make all they do is make thermometers. You don't want to buy a thermometer from a company that doesn't make them as their primary um, career uh, because yeah. that's what they profess. They, they know it. They know the technology. And so when you pick them up at, at, at random places, at Winners or HomeSense or whatever, and there's lying about, you're getting a lie about. You want to deal with companies like a company, a CDN. Um, they, that's all they do. Thermoworks. Th- thermal they only, Thermapens, they're very expensive, but that's what the chefs use, Thermapens, and they yeah. are accurate. So you want to make sure when you go into a store, they will help you. They'll say, what do you carry? And we only carry ones that, that's what, that the company only makes thermometers, and right. that's
1: important. And if you do pay a bit more, I mean, I think it's worth the investment for sure because you will have that if you love cooking, and, and I've had some um, some thermometers that have not been great for me too, Laura, so I know exactly what you're saying there. Julie on the line in Delta. Hi, Julie.
0: Hi there, Mike and Karen. Hi. Um, My question is, if I don't have a brining bag, can I put my turkey directly into the cooler and then pour the brine over top of it?
4: If your your cooler is really small, like you don't want like the big, big cooler that you're Turkey's only going to be sitting in like two inches of brine the purpose of the bag is that you can roll it that the the bag surrounds the the brining the brine solution surrounds the turkey i kind of go in sort of every like four hours and i'll turn it upside down so now the top is in it so that really is brining all the way around so if you have a small cooler ones that you just sneak beers on the beach with that would work Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Right? And, and don't, yeah. don't put it in the 20-liter, you know, two-week camping trip cooler because it's going to just sit in a waiting pool.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that I've done, I, I usually put mine in a cooler and out on the back porch if, when it's cold outside, Karen. And I, I put some ice cubes in there, too, to make perfect. sure it stays yes. cold. Yeah, because you don't want it getting warm. But in this weather, you don't have much to worry about outside right now. We're good. Yeah. Anne in Surrey. Hi, Ann.
5: Hi, um, I was going to tell you that um, my grandmother had a recipe that I entered in a contest when they had Zellers and they had a recipe contest for Thanksgiving recipes. And it won the best one across Canada out of 100. Wow. Yeah. Wow! What was but it? She, what she did was she took the giblets and put them in a little pot of water with peppercorns and a bay leaf, simmered that away, toasted all the bread, and then used three-quarters of a cup of that giblet water, ground up the giblets with it, a pound mm. of ground pork, all the toast just crumbled up in big kind of pieces, and all the rest of the stuff that you would normally put in a stuffing. It's really, really good.
1: What do you think of oh, that, Karen?
4: Congratulations, yes. Yeah, if, you, if you like a meat stuffing, that's great, and a lot of people do. I prefer a bread stuffing with maybe a little bit of fruit because I think... Um, turkey poultry lends itself to sweet hence the cranberry sauce that goes with it but you know what there's not uh, every there's lots there's so many versions but um i'm that's awesome that you won the other
1: thing the other thing that i do karen was speaking of the giblets if i've got giblets with the turkey i will make a stock with that so i'll put those giblets in some water on in a stock pot on the stove just simmer it on low put some aromatics in there and i will use that for my uh for my gravy what do you think
4: that's exactly right you don't want to waste that there's lots of flavor in there and and it just simmers away on the back burner and there you've got your your stock for gravy and the gravy will be incredible and it's even better if you pour in a cup of marcella wine
1: all right, welcome back. We are talking turkey with Karen McSherry from Gourmet Warehouse, and we've got lots of calls here, Karen. So let's jump right back into it here. Okay, I'm Carol. Ready. All right, Carol on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Carol. Go ahead.
4: Good morning. A uh, quick tip for the gravy: um, your uh, drippings in the pan um, will have moisture in it. You want to get rid of that moisture. You reduce, reduce, reduce. This will um, uh, create. A nice, rich, dark gravy. You don't want your gravy to be blonde and pasty. Um, So you reduce and then you add your flour. You make a roux and then you add your stock. And um, uh, you don't want it to be, you don't make a whitewash. That'll make it pasty and blonde. And uh, good enough to put in your wine glass and drink it.
1: Okay, okay. I love it. (laughs) Good one. Okay, what, any other gravy tips from you, Karen?
4: Um, just make sure that you cook that flour out Yeah. because if you don't, it will be pasty. You must cook that root, cook it down and then slowly add the stock. Don't dump that, that, that in all at once or you're just going to have a a, lots of lumps. You want to do it slow and get it all in in, emulsified and then add your next ladle full. And then again and again and again, until it's to the consistency that you like your gravy.
1: Yeah. You know what I saw? You know what I saw Jamie Oliver do once on a, on a video that I saw? He, he cut the wingtips off the turkey. You know, the part you don't eat, like yes. the, the wingtip yeah. and also. Yeah. You know the little tail part too? They call. I think some people call it the Pope's nose. There, the Pope's that little, nose. It, yeah. basically, it's the butt, Mike. The butt. It's the butt. I
4: always tease my kids, and I say, "Here, the Pope's nose is for you." And they're like,
1: "Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> the part nobody eats." He would cut that off and throw that in the gravy, just to sort of Perfect. mix it around it in there. Yeah the flavor, sure. Yeah, I I love I, Jamie I, Oliver. Yeah, he's great. I, I do that uh-huh. every time after I saw that. Dennis and Delta. Hi, Dennis. Hey, Mike.
7: Uh, one time, uh, I was watching the food network and I picked up a good tip. Uh, they, uh, used like a rubber spatula and worked the skin away from the breast meat and then, uh, mix up a, uh, a little compound butter, like a quarter cup of butter with some seasoning salt and garlic powder, and then work it up in between the, uh, the breast meat and the skin. Yes. Oh, that's
4: um, a great then, plan. Yeah. Love yeah, it.
7: Then, yeah. Then I just roasted covered at three fifty, and it comes out perfect. But, uh, one other thing, be careful got not to co-
4: tear your skin, though.
7: Yeah, yeah. that's why I use a, like a rubber spatula. So yeah, you got to be really careful.
4: Yeah. But
7: so one one thing I got for Christmas one time, I don't know if they have them at the gourmet kitchen, was a uh, a silicone um, turkey basket that you set in your roasting pan, and then put the turkey on top of. So then when you take your hot turkey out of the pan when it's done, you just have a couple of handles to you can lift it out really easily.
4: We have every lifter possible, honey. Yeah, Yeah, that was (laughs)
7: actually, it worked great. I use that all the time because I don't know about you guys, but Trying to get a 20-pound stuffed turkey out of a roasting pan sometimes can be a little precarious. You have to
1: call, you have to call in the troops for that one. Yeah. yeah but it's, yeah. it's good to have some sort of, thank you for the call, Dennis. It's good to have some sort of a roasting rack. Like, I got a big, ra- big roasting rack that I put right in the pan.
4: And then you just lift it out, and then yeah. you don't break the, the turkey in half.
1: Right. And then it also creates some space on the bottom of the turkey, too, right? You Which know, is important, air, because yeah. you
4: don't want that sitting in liquid the whole time. Right, right, exactly.
1: Kim in New West on the phone line. Hi, Kim.
4: Hi. <clears throat> I hate to be a downer, but all of the things you're talking about are for gatherings and for large a ga- large number of people. Yeah. I'm single. What do I do? I can't cook a huge turkey. I tried a Cornish game hen one time, and that didn't work real well. So... What what do single people do? really easy. You, you can you can buy you can buy pieces of turkey. So if you're a white meat lover, you can buy a small a half of a turkey breast and do everything that we talked about. If you're a dark meat person, you could buy the leg and thigh and then you could cook that in the same way that we're talking about. So you can I live alone. I mean, I have my kids, which they, they eat. So it's okay. But you, you don't have to do the whole turkey. And then if you did the, chose to do the leg side portion, you eat what you want. And then you've got the rest left over for a sandwiches or a little bit of soup or whatever. So no, you don't need to buy an eight or 10 pound turkey. You can do it in pieces. And there's lots of stores that do specialty stores like. Sebastian's and chophis and those places will sell pieces like like and 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 delicious, so you could go that route.
1: Thank you, Kim, for pointing that out. yeah, like not everyone's getting together a huge family yeah, uh, gathering for, especially especially this year. Leslie and Burnaby. Hi Leslie. Well, good morning,
0: uh, everybody. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm now a senior by myself, and I've never cooked a small little piece of turkey. Uh, I'm thinking my turkey I got a breast and it's roughly one point one kg I'm thinking an hour at roughly three fifty
4: about there i do I, I would you know what I would do is i would i would cut a slit in it and then I would put some some either some flavoring like a compound butter butter like Dennis was talking about mix some butter with flavors like maybe a lemon rind or you know like tarragon or or what flavors you like and stick that in and then tie it up because then that will give flavor inside because you don't have that long roast to season it so you want to give it a little bit of help you could also wrap it in pancetta which is italian bacon which would be amazing because the italian pancetta has some it's grease it's it's got more fat and flavor than just bacon so that would be amazing and it would come out spectacular and you'd have that crispy pancetta when you slice into it and you're away to the races and you're really happy
1: okay i love the sound of that especially because the breast can be like a dry part of the turkey too so you don't want to dry that out 604-280-9898 is the number to call 604 280 9898 star 9898 on your cell. Barbara on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Barbara.
0: Hello there. Hi. Go ahead. Um, yeah, for a tip for a nice, moist breast, you, you lose the crispy skin, but to cook it breast side down in your pan, um, especially if you're using a frozen turkey, which can be a bit dry, it'll give you a nice, moist um, breast of turkey.
1: Okay, I've heard this theory before, Karen. You know, if you roast the turkey upside down, the juices, I guess <laughs> the juices just like gravity will go to the breast. I mean, does that make any sense?
4: You know what? I, I, I just, you know what? It, the, the Norman Rockwell vision just loses itself when he's upside yeah. down. Yeah. Um, if it works, I never, you know what? It, I go with if it works for you and you're thrilled with the results, then that's the way you do it. And if you're looking, you know, don't change what isn't broken if you love it that way.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, what I say, sure. I mean, if that's working for you, I have heard that theory. I've never tried it before for pretty much the precise reason you just described. I want the I want it the breast side up. So that I've got that beautiful, yes. you know, mahogany finish, right? Yeah, like so the, that yeah.
4: that gorgeous bring to the table, and you're prouder yeah. than a peacock. But right. it, it's the brining that will never uh, that the brining is why you do it because you'll never end up with a dry bird. Yeah. Can I do it? Can I just give a self selfless, selfish um, advice?
0: Yes, if you of course. Want the
4: best sides. I my latest book. Starters, salads, and sexy sides will give you every single thing that you could ever want for side dishes that are a bit more modern and upbeat. But that would be what I'd say, I, have, I love my sides. <laughs> I
1: have that book, and I highly recommend it. And it is absolutely jam-packed with some of the best side dishes ever. So yeah, absolutely. That is an awesome book, Karen. What would you say, What is a good, like, okay, so if someone's thinking about a great, side dish that's not too difficult there's, you know a bit more on the easy side what would you say i would say
4: oh there's so many but a really yeah. easy side would be um brussels sprouts yeah uh, and cut them in half or even cut them in quarters and bacon and yes, maple yes. syrup on a, on, a, on a cookie sheet, do yourself a favor and put some parchment down so you don't have the cleanup, and, and, and then toss that up, some pepper. You don't need salt because bacon's salty, and then toss that up and put that in the oven at 375, about oh, 30 minutes before you're taking out the bird and, and give them keep stirring them. You're going to need a little bit of olive oil, and you will have amazing Brussels sprouts. Or you could do that in a wok.
1: Oh, no, in a walk. The, okay, huh. in a
4: walk. And if you're challenged and with space, and you only have four burners, and you're you know doing potatoes and and broccoli and cauliflower and all of those things, you know what? Revert to your barbecue as a source of heat.
1: Oh. Okay, okay. Was, you can put a, good...
4: a you can put a cookie sheet in the barbecue lid sure. down. Boom, and you've got an extra heating source.
1: Okay, back to the phone lines. Alicia in Surrey. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Go ahead. Um, Hi. My question was, I was
0: taught or told to trust the bird. So tie the legs up and tuck the wings under. And now I'm seeing that not very many people are doing that or when I watch the cooking shows. So would you suggest it or not suggest it?
4: You know, it, it used to be, it was the way of the 50s and the 60s, and I think now it's just more work, more time, another thing to go and buy, the trussing needle, and, and then you have to tie it all up. You know what, it, you do it because the wings will spread apart. She'll just, the bird will just flop. So if you just tie the legs together just to keep it nice and tight, it's more for visual. It has nothing to do with taste.
1: Right, also if, um if you have the legs untied, does that allow the that dark meat around the sort of thigh area to, to cook a bit more effectively too exactly you know I mean? yeah.
4: Exactly. because okay. it's not stuck together you want and then you get more crispy bits and more brown skin and that's what people want yeah, so yeah, yeah. You, I, w- I would never worry if you don't you can or you can't it's a personal thing it's not going to change the anything that that, that
1: of your bird. Okay, JD on the phone in White Rock. Hi, JD. Go ahead.
5: Hey guys. Uh, yeah. So I totally agree with the Brussels sprouts. Cut them in half. Some bacon. I do some garlic and stuff. Um, also, get that uh, get the guts of that turkey boiling and get that gravy going all day long. All your vegetable scraps go into that. I usually yeah. do it on the barbecue because one of my kids uh, has some special needs and the and the smell is too strong. Um, and the turkey, I usually lift up the skin. I carefully with my fingers get in there and li- and peel the skin back, and then I stuff my uh, my mixture of spices and oil and maybe some butter in there, and then on yeah. top of the skin. And the last time uh, I did one a couple of days ago um, It was an early, you know, family thing. Um, I the neck skin, I pulled that off, and I and I browned the turkey, and the neck skin was was enough to cover. Cover the the, the, the breast, uh, again, so I put a second oh. layer of skin on there, and it was oh. great. Anyway, oh.
1: thanks, okay. guys. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Hey, Karen, where is the Gourmet Warehouse?
4: It is Hastings and Clark on the corner um, in Vancouver. So 1340 East Hastings Street in Vancouver. Free parking in the back, and we're open every day. Uh, Christmas Eve, we close at 2.30, because I've got to give my staff their due rest. They're exhausted. They've been running for a month. So, yeah, we have everything you need. And I can guarantee,
1: and I can guarantee if when you go there, you're going to absolutely love the store, because the Gourmet Warehouse is just an awesome place. Karen, thank you once again for doing that this year. Lots of awesome tips how to cook a perfect turkey. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and your family.
4: Thanks, Mike, and happy cooking. I, I think of you with your bird and all the <laughs> stove just fired up and you're just going crazy oh, yeah. and enjoy your well-deserved two weeks off.